Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm going to be your host, Jordana Osband, here with my friend. Our DAP today, Masachet Yavamot, DAP Ayin Aleph, page 71. So before Ann and I get to what we actually want to talk about today, I just want to mention that on Ahmed Aleph, there's just a sort of classic, you know, uh, uh, you know, disagreement between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Eliezer about how do you, you know, interpret different sukim, and it gives sort of different philosophies, right? It's the Toshav Sahir where Rabbi Akiva has sort of a very elaborate uh, understanding of how to use these words and, you know, what halakha does it teach us, and Rabbi Eliezer, who basically says, yep, there's not really any source to learn any of these halachot, um, and that also, you know, specifically about this ish ish, that basically the Torah just speaks like people do. So I, we're not going to read the whole thing. I just wanted to point it out. But this is sort of just one of these classic, you know, machla code of how do we actually go about interpretation of Midrash Halacha, Rabbi Akiva, who we know is creative, and this opinion of Rabbi Eliezer, which is we don't darshan out, we don't expound upon every single word. The Torah is written in the language of man, and we know that we always speak with superfluous words. And so sometimes the Torah does as well. Um, and I guess I would just leave it with this as, as much as we th- sort of think of uh, Rabbi Akiva as being, you know, this, as I called him, this creative exegete, very radical about Rabbi Eliezer's opinion as well, that sort of you can have a word that doesn't really mean anything and that doesn't do anything to the integrity of the text. In other words, if you're going to say, if we believe, as we do, that that text comes from God, then sort of in a way, every word is very, very important and significant. And along comes Rabbi Yezer and he says, it's true, but meaning it's true, it's God's word, but it doesn't mean that everything has. That's also in itself, I think, a pretty radical interpretation. Okay. Um, and of course, we track these these two, this Bar Pluta, you know, we look at them often to see exactly how they line up with their own shitot. Right. Right. I, and I just want to say the other one that you'll see, it's Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yishmael. So just keep that in mind. Rabbi Akiva, it's either Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Eliezer or Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yishmael. Okay. And I just want to have one more comment here because Rabbi Akiva so often is held up to be like, listen, he's Rabbi Akiva, right? And he is. And so much of the Mishnah is based on his approach of teaching and so on. But he has real people who disagree with him vehemently. And those machoke, those disputes are preserved and and important, right? They're part of, the, I mean, this is the backbone of, of, of halacha. So on the one hand, even when his opinion wins, he's never presented as a monolithic. And I feel like it's like a, a very essential element of of the way Talmud and halacha in general, you know, come to be. It's, it's with this, um, even when you have the person who's considered the most authoritative, He's never fully authoritative, right? There's nothing draconian or totalitarian about the halachic system. For all that sometimes, sometimes draconian maybe, but not totalitarian. There's never only one view. A hundred percent. I mean, I think that's the overall theme of Gemara. Okay, go on. <laughs> okay. Um, so... Um, we have here a discussion. I, this stuff is very long and there's a lot of, I don't know, more more difficult, I don't know what to say difficult, less common details of halacha show up here. In this case, we have, we're talking about a baby and a brit milah, and in this particular case, we have a child who's 
who is not well, and therefore they're going to wait until he gets better um, before they can give him Brit Milah. Brit Milah. So here we go. That what happens is that if he's recovering from that illness, they're going to wait a full seven days. They don't say like, oh, your fever's gone. We'll give you a Brit the next day. They give him a full seven days to be sure that he's fully recovered. To Amar Shmuel, Shmuel said that, again, if the baby's got this high fever, the day the fever leaves, um, we give him seven days to heal from then. And only that point would we give him Brit Milan, not before that, right? And then, okay, so what about a case where we've given them a full days to heal, and now, and this is where it gets tricky, and it goes back to what's been going on previously on the DAF, right? They get better, the kid gets better on Erev Pesach. Now, Erev Pesach, now it, it's a little bit, I'm going to say this is a little bit of a scenario that begs the question, right? Because what's the issue? Here you've got a baby who's not going to be circumcised, or the question is, will he be circumcised once we come to Pesach, when we have the Korban Pesach, that if you're an Arel, if you're an uncircumcised person, you cannot, man, right? You cannot eat from the Korban Pesach. So this is going to be the crux of our question, which we're about to see inside, except for here's the, the reason I say it's kind of, it's there for the asking, but it's not a real, um, it's not a reality question is because the baby is not going to be eating for the carbon Pesach because he's a baby. Meaning we're talking about somebody who's, you know, tops 15 years, 15 days old. Right. So I don't know. Dana, you know any 15-day-old babies who are eating from the Korban Pesach? Nope. <laughs> like, even if the kid had a bris on time, right, still, a week later, is not going to be eating from the Korban Pesach. He's a baby. Um, so what happened? So they say they should give him the brit in the morning of Erev Pesach so that then he could ostensibly eat from the Korban Pesach in the night. By, in a, by the way, your data, this is one of those things. I wonder if this is one of those like, oh, women learning Gemara as compared to men learning Gemara. Do they pay attention to the fact that the baby is not going to be eating or do they just plow on through because we're talking about the math of it? The math of it is an interesting question, right? The math of it is what do you do with somebody who, what if the baby gets better the next day, right? The, the next day is going to be the time of, of having circumcision. Um, okay, so the Gemara says, Ba'inan me'et la'et. So the rest is we require that there's a, a full seven days from the time to the time, which means that seven days doesn't mean the date on the calendar. It means the elapsing of a full 24 hours from the time of the beginning of the illness, let's say, until seven days have passed, which means that you don't rush a brisk to the morning if seven full days have not elapsed just because of the Korban Pesach issue. So what's interesting to hear is, again, nobody's saying, but that baby's not going to eat from the Korban Pesach anyway. Everybody wants the baby to be officially eligible. Get that breed done as soon as possible. But as soon as possible does not mean skimping on the 24-hour periods, meaning the seven of them, that need to be completed in full before anybody's going to sign off on the child being officially well enough to sustain the Brit Milah. So, you know, when we talk about the the degree to which Pikuach Nefesh and the primacy of health and so on, to, you know, shows up in Judaism. This is an example of exactly where you have that clash of values of, oh, we must get the 
you know, must get ready for the Korban Pesach to the extent possible. And then the answer is, okay, but you know what? You're going to wait the extra few hours to make sure that you've completed the seven full hours. And maybe medically the difference is not real, but but they preserved it, I think, you know, for the sake of just being really sure that the child is fully recovered. Um, okay. The Gemara goes on. There's a, there's a Tana, there's a sage from Lud, from the place of Lud, Lod, I guess, um, which is not necessarily the Lod of today, but Lod as a location shows up in the Gemara. Yom Havratok Yom Havivaldo, right? Didn't that same sage teach that the day of his healing is like the day of his birth? Meaning, so then you're going to count eight from the day of his he- You're going to count eight from the day of his healing, is the implication, I think. My love, my Yom Havivaldo, Loba in a maid late, Af Yom Havrato, Loba in a maid late. So the implication being, he's got a different view on this 24 hour, waiting for seven days of 24 hours, seven periods of 24 hours passing. He says, isn't it like the day of his birth? The same way that on the day of the child's birth, you don't wait, you know, 24, uh, you don't wait eight days of 24 hour periods from the moment of birth. Can you imagine if everybody had to give, have the bris only at the moment, only at the time of the actual delivery, right? That's like saying, you know, the kid is born at 8.30 at night, the Brit Milah will have to take place eight days later, 8.30 at night. Nobody says that. Um, so the point being then is, you know, in this case, shouldn't we say the day of his healing is does not require eight late, those 24-hour elapsing, as, com- you know, because it's going to be compared to the day of the birth. Like Mary says, no. <laughs> like, don't even bother us. Which... I'm not surprised, except for, again, I like when they preserve, um, they always do, right? Preserve the minority opinion or or the hypothesis that is then rejected. Lo, adif yom havratomi yom hivaldo. He says, in fact, the day of the healing is better than the day of one's birth. The ilu yom hivaldo, lo ba'inam eitleit. The ilu yom havrato ba'inam eitleit. This is because, in fact, at the time of the birth, we don't wait eight late. We don't wait those 24-hour um, cycles. Right, but on the day of healing, we do need to wait a full seven complete days from the time that he heals till that same time, seven days later. Um, why, where you get, where Chazal get this idea that this is better, you know, that it's a an superior to um, to the day of his birth, and therefore you have to wait the full amount of time, is not clear to me why that's a why how that's a refutation. Um, the the rejection, I mean, it's clear, it's rejecting the suggestion, but I'm not sure that this is the best um, uh, refutation or, or dismissal. Uh, it's a fine dismissal. It doesn't explain why or not to the degree that usually we, I, I guess, expect. Um, and then the Gemara goes on to talk about other circumstances where you could have, you know, the boy baby who would be present, you know, at the Grom Pesach but not available, let's say, during on Erev Pesach. Rav Papa Amar, Kigon, Dechiv Le'enei, Le'enoka, Ve'itpach, Itfach Be'enei Uve'enei. So what happens? He says, Rav Papa says, you know, let's say the baby has a, an eye that hurts him, meaning this is not about being on our rail. A baby who had a Brit Milah, I'm sorry, the, the question of what happens if the baby has an eye that hurts him, let's say, on the eighth day, when he's, when he's just born, right? And then that day is Erev Pesach, meaning he should be having his bris on time. But he's got this other issue that's not going to 
you know, that's still going to mess him up. I don't know, for that moment of the time that he would have his bris. Um, but then um, as soon as he recovers, let's say his eye stops hurting him, then they can give him a bris. Meaning this is not the kind, I think the point here though, is that Rav Papa's recognizing that there are minor ailments. There are things that could get in the way of giving a bris that minute, that day, that would still not require a full seven days of healing to make sure that he's okay. Meaning an eye hurting, I don't know exactly how they know the baby's eye is hurting, but whatever, I'm sure you're Daniel, you can explain that, right? There's there's going to be some circumstance where there's a minor issue that you still wait and make sure it's not going to become bigger. You make sure that the baby's actually okay to be able to tolerate the Brit Milah, but not the kind of thing with a high fever that you want to see a full seven days elapse um, before they're, to make sure that they're okay. And so if that happens and it's Erev Pesach, then you might end up with a child who's can't have is won't be ready for the Korban Pesach on Erev Pesach, but theoretically could like later that day or or the next. So what I find interesting about this passage is is exactly as you said, Anne, like no babies eating the Korban Pesach. I mean, I don't know, unless there's some custom we weren't aware of where you like, you know, almost took like a dip of the lamb juice and like put it in the baby's mouth. Like maybe that's something that happened, which I could theoretically see that you could but maybe we do. We don't know about it. What? We certainly don't know about it. Right. We certainly don't know about it. So, I, you know, maybe that is what it's talking about. But what's interesting is, is that you're sort of taking like a very boundary pushing idea. I mean, not even boundary pushing. Like, again, no babies eating a chunk of meat from the Corban Pesach. But then they're like superimposing on it real life things that actually do happen to babies. And how does that impact whether or not they get to eat the Korban Pesach? So it's sort of this like, it's like a magical realism case. That's how I would sort of describe this. I think so. Um, the other suggestion, of course, one could talk about, I guess, is what about a convert? Maybe the Gemara will get there, right? Like a convert schedules the day of the bris, right? Um, and then, I don't know, what if the you want to get, you want to become Jewish as quickly as possible, as soon as possible, once you're, once you're eligible, right? So, I don't know. I, I feel like there are scenarios we can make up that, where you would want to make sure that the convert could have the Brit by the, by the time of the Korban Pesach, and then maybe something could like put a wrinkle in those plans. Yeah, I guess so. But but I don't know that a convert has to because they're not Jewish. So, you know, like they don't have to be ready to eat the Korban Pesach. Whereas I think. Yeah, it's, I did, yeah, it's not it's not parallel. I, I agree. I mean, I'm totally trying. Parallel. It's not totally parallel. All right. I'm going to move on to something else on Ahmed Bet, which is, you know, a lot of what this staff is trying to tease out is what's the status of the RL vis-a-vis a variety of different mitzvot or halachot. And so here they get into the question of ha, uh, hazaa, right? Which is the sprinkling of the, you know, ashes of the paraduma of the red heifer in order to make somebody, uh, ta, you know, in order to make somebody tafor. I'm a Rabbi Yochanan Mishum, Rabbi Benaya. Arel mekabel hazaa, shekein matzinu ba'abutenu shekiblu hazaa kishem arilin, kishahin arilin. Shenemar v'ha'am alu min hayardim b'asur l'chodesh harisham. So this is one of these interesting sort of uh, observations that's being made because it's sort of more based on the narrative in the Torah and not based on a specific law. 
And so what Rabbi Yochanan claims here is that someone who's uncircumcised can get the sprinkling of the paraduma because we see that our forefathers got were sprinkled with the paraduma when they were uncircumcised. And here they quote a pasuk in, Yisha, in Yehoshua chapter 4, verse 19, that says, and the people came up out of Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. And then basically the rest of that chapter goes on to say that the men were all um, circumcised uh, before getting the Korban Pesach on the 14th. So we no Mila, no Brit Mila was done in the Midbar because of the travel conditions. They never knew B'nai Israel when they were going to have to get up and travel. So that whole generation um, was, uh, was, not, was not circumcised. Right. And so the so what they say here is the following. So on the 10th, they didn't circumcise themselves. Right. Because of the weariness of their journey. In other words, they came up. The 10th, but they still were not circumcised. Right. When was the sprinkling done? In other words, there were two things that had to happen. They needed to get circumcised in order to eat sort of this first Korban Pesach, because again, one of the things that's interesting that we forget is the Korban Pesach was done. And then for many years in the Midbar, there was no Korban Pesach because everybody wasn't circumcised, right? So they needed to have the Korban Pesach done, but they also needed to have the sprinkling done in order to remove any Tumat Hamid that they may have had so that they could eat the Korban Pesach. And we know that when you do the sprinkling, right, there's two sprinkling, there's different sprinklings that take place. The first one has to take place no later than the 10th, because there's a four, in other words, the 10th of Nisan, because there's a four day waiting period between the first and the second one. So basically what this is saying is if they came up in the 10th and the circumcision didn't take place till later, they must have been sprinkled in order to make sure that nobody was tummy to do the Korban Pesach before the circumcision actually took place. The Dilma Lo Abud Pesach Klau. So then the Gemara says, maybe they just didn't do Korban Pesach that year, right? And so because nobody was circumcised, they sort of waited until everybody was circumcised. And then the following year is when they did a Korban Pesach. Lo right? It can't enter your mind. Because it says that they did bring the Korban Pesach in the next parak. Um, so Matzkif Lav Marzutra, Rav Zutra disagrees with this. V'dilma Pesach haba so he says, maybe this was a Korban Pesach that you were allowed to bring in a back all the way to our Masachet Pesachim, for those of you who have been learning with us for that long. And remember that there was a whole idea that if the majority of the community was actually Tameh because of Tumen you actually could bring the Korban in that state of ritual impurity. And you didn't actually need to make sure that the whole community became Tahor. And so Marzutra says, we don't need to figure out like whether or not they were sprinkled. You didn't need to be sprinkled that year. Nobody needed to be Tahor because the majority of people were tummy. Amarle Ravashi, Tanya Behad, just Ravashi says it's taught, ex- you know, it's taught explicitly in a Brisa. Malu v'tablu v'asu pischeihem b'tara. No, the, the tradition that we have, and it's interesting, there's no psukim that they actually bring to sort of prove this, but the is that they actually did eat it in a state of Tara. Now, why does the brisa, this brisa have to go out of its way? Like, why would it be so bad to say that they were actually tame? I don't have a good explanation for it. In other words, there's a reason that they really want to be wedded to this narrative that it had to have been done in Tara. And maybe because it's important to establish that once the Korban Pesach gets restarted after a decades-long lapse, 
you know, because it was laps in the midbar. We want to make sure and say that it was actually done correctly. We didn't do it like half correctly. Um, but a very interesting discussion. Again, I think just the way that this is all learned based on narrative. It's not based on, you know, Pasuk in Baikra Bar Midbar, you know, that says like so and so, you know, an RL is allowed to be sprinkled or not allowed to be sprinkled is completely based on a narrative story that presents in Yoshua. So I, just to recognize that we're learning something from Nevi'im and not from the Torah itself. That's our Daf discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcasts. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.